Should security fears see Britain ban a huge Chinese firm from its mobile networks? In the event of any potential future conflict we might find ourselves in with China, we would be very vulnerable to them. Plus the return of Cold War rhetoric and the ethics of killer robots. No sooner have we got used to 4G data on our mobile phones, a new technology is on the way. But could the even faster 5G give China a backdoor into vital data? The US, Australia and New Zealand have all placed restrictions on China's Huawei, providing equipment for the domestic 5G services being piloted by telecoms firms. This week, the head of MI6 questioned whether Huawei should be involved in Britain's 5G network. So why are Western countries so worried about Huawei. Professor Anthony Glees is the director of the Centre for Security and Intelligence Studies at the University of Buckingham. Earlier, he spoke to our reporter, Gisela Waldron. The new 5G mobile network, that, that's a really important network because it's that network that will control what we call the Internet of Things. That is to say, objects that are electronically controlled from Alexa that does the TV, the washing machines. What all of this adds up to is that we are opening up our communications and our critical national infrastructure to a Chinese company. And that means that in the event of any potential future conflict we might find ourselves in with China, we would be very vulnerable to them, both in terms of their ability to shut us down if they wished, and in their ability to intercept our communications and find out what we're up to. They've already got a bit of a grasp on some of the networks in the UK. Is it too late to sort of change that? This is a very, very complicated question you, you, you've put to me, and I think some of our best brains in the government's communication centre, GCHQ, will be puzzling over this at the moment. What is the danger? The danger is that the work that we have already given them, we've, they, Huawei were first given the contract to work on communications in the U United Kingdom in 2001, it's a very long time ago, uh, that they will have already injected into that which they have supplied us with, software and hardware, the wherewithal to remain within our systems but concealed from our cybersecurity people, GCHU and the National Cyber Security Centre in Victoria. The, the, the National Cyber Security Centre have already issued warnings that they cannot give a, com a complete assurance that uh, this has not already been done. And they have said that it is technically possible that there are software programs in our systems that cannot be detected by our own people. So the implications of this are massive. That's why they've not been given the 5G network now. That's why the head of MI6, known as C, Alex Younger, said 
implicitly that Chinese are a big threat and we cannot be content that we're giving them this access to our communication systems in the United Kingdom. What's the alternative, though? The Chinese technology is supposed to be the best. Will this leave us lagging behind? It will. Of course it will. And that is part of the problem. And, and uh, you know, we are very focused on Brexit and the security implications of Brexit. We've already said we are going to pull out of the Galileo uh, satellite system. And uh, that puts us at risk. The truth is that we haven't wanted to develop this technology ourselves. We've done, you could say, the obvious thing. We've gone into the global market and bought the best kit we could get without really thinking of the consequences. And I say China is not our enemy at the moment. China is possibly an adversary of this country. It's not our enemy. What we're talking about is what could happen in any future scenario where the People's Republic of China and the United Kingdom could find themselves on opposite sides. That was Professor Anthony Gleese from the University of Buckingham. Our defence analyst Christopher Lee is here. Christopher, Britain was pretty much the last of the so-called Five Eyes Alliance to do anything about this. Were we slow to react or are the others now overreacting? No, they're not overreacting. They're going into the next stage because what they're working on are different projects. Uh, Five Eyes is really intelligence with Canada, New Zealand, Australia um, and ourselves. Um, the big projects and the major projects don't affect them as the way that we had to consider it. For example, uh, if you build a new uh, nuclear power station, which is people are planning to do at Hinkley Point in Somerset, the Chinese will have access to the communications and the systems. And could they, during a period of outage, which is repairs, could they close down the whole thing? During a period of tension, could they close down the whole thing? It's that sort of vulnerability that people are having to think on a much bigger scale. Now, what is also happening, and um, I mean, we, we got some of that there, but if you've got a system that we're developing at the moment, the United Kingdom's developing at the moment, you can do it in such a way that what China is doing cannot actually get into that system, uh, either because the, the project that it was into before is very old, uh, or it has not been able to modernize its own system. That, 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 that's, that's one part of it. The other thing is that the Chinese are very, very good at uh, running with a program. What they're not good at very good at all is the development of that program. And so the United Kingdom, uh, the Dutch, the Belgians, uh, to some extent the French are doing, they're trying to see what Chinese programs that they can actually not block, but if at the time it showed that there was somebody who was getting into it, they could neuter it. Now that is such a complicated thing and the rules can change tomorrow. Uh, next month, next year, or whatever, because the whole thing about uh, cyber attacks, for example, is moving far too fast for any one country to be able to keep up with it. Still to come, how the military could be drawn into a crisis triggered by climate change, a raft of senior appointments in the forces, and the ethics of a military robot that could be given the power of life and death. Yes, it's
Now, most of us thought we'd left the language of the Cold War firmly in the past, but it's made a comeback this week as a row continues over alleged breaches of a 30-year-old treaty banning ground-based intermediate-range missiles. Russia has warned Eastern European nations who agree to host any new US missiles they'd be first in the line of fire in any future conflict. Well, let's speak to Jonathan Isle, who's Associate Director at RUSI. Jonathan, good to speak to you today. Hello. The first target of that warning is presumably those nations on NATO's eastern flank. Indeed, it's Romania and uh, Poland that have accepted uh, American missile installations. Missile installations which initially, it must be said, were intended to protect Europe from missile developments of Iran rather than directly those of Russia and which can still not uh, cope with Russia's nuclear arsenal. But I think that the Russian position is goes even further. What it is trying to do is the beginning of a new initiative to drive a wedge between the Europeans and the Americans to say if the Americans withdraw from this major international arms control treaty and are thinking of their future steps Europe will be in the firing line if it sides with the United States it's a return sadly to propaganda techniques from Moscow circa 1980 mm, you say that uh, do you really think that Russia wants to keep this treaty though no, I think the Russians felt hemmed in themselves. Let's not forget these treaties are also prisoners of their own time. Intermediate range uh, nuclear missiles that they were abolishing are the kind of weapons that China now has, Israel now has, Iran now has, India has, so North Korea indeed. So the Russians may be right in saying that the treaty may have been overtaken by events, but they have violated the treaty while claiming not to have done so and are now mounting a propaganda offensive claiming that the United States is responsible for destroying it. So while there may have been a good case for replacing old treaties with new ones, what we're now facing is a collapse of the arms control regime plus a Russia that is engaged in an arms race. Mm, and you talk about this new propaganda war. How far do you think it's going to go? A great deal, uh, because uh, it couldn't have escaped the Russians' attention that there is no, for the moment, no kind of mood in, in Europe uh, for considering new American missile deployments, perhaps nuclear-tipped missile deployments uh, on European soil. Uh, so uh, there is plenty of scope there for the Russians to, uh, to, uh, to work on. Let's remember, uh, it was Russia that stands accused of violating a treaty, in, and yet most of the commentaries in the Western media have been about how disruptive the United States is in walking away from a treaty which was in any case dead. Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is here. Jonathan mentioned the 1980s there. Jonathan, wasn't it so, we, we, this is, we we're talking about here something very important, that was the SS-20s, uh, the modernisation programmes, with the Americans then saying under uh, Brown, the defence secretary in, 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 in Washington, that we want to book cruise missiles, what cruise missiles have in the United Kingdom. The Italians said we will supply facilities for them as well, etc., etc. This created even an improvement in the figures of, of CND. It is not something just passing. If you take that period of the, when was it, the 83? Somewhere yes, around there. absolutely, early 80s. Yeah, uh, if you take that, you're going to find the reaction can be something very peculiar this time round, and that is because there is no, or there's very little, reassurance 
that the United States is led by somebody who has Western Europe interests at heart or who expresses them. Now, you know, six years' time, that will all change or will, or will it? So these things must not be just dismissed as, oh, well, it's just just the Russians and the Americans having a go at each other. Jonathan Isle, earlier this week we had a NATO foreign ministers meeting discussing the tensions between Russia and Ukraine. Our perception here is that Putin is a strategic genius, poses a huge threat to the West. That's the kind of rhetoric we're getting from people like the head of NATO. But do, do you think we've got that right? We got it partially right in the sense that the Russian leader is very good at pouncing at opportunities that are offered him. Uh, but a lot of these opportunities are offered by our own policymakers uh, who very often want to express support for Ukraine's independence but don't want to do uh, anything in particular about it. Uh, let's just take this week the German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Uh, she said there is no military solution to Ukraine crisis. Isn't there? Well, Mr. Putin seems to be imposing a military solution to the Ukraine crisis. The reality is that there is no military solution we want to contemplate uh, for the situation in Ukraine. So, for the moment, uh, Putin uh, controls the escalation dominance. Namely, he knows he can try uh, any provocation like he's done recently in Ukraine in the full knowledge that uh, the West may not do anything to escalate it. And there's another side of this. Uh, uh, Mr. Mr. Putin looks, and I don't believe he is the, you know, he is, he is the fierce man that's going to sort of push us all towards war and that necessarily we have to go along with everything that the controller uh, MI6 actually says. But, but, uh, Mr. Putin looks and he has never seen NATO politically in such a mess uh, when you consider especially that the majority of members or a large number of members of NATO also happen to be members of the EU and the EU is going through sort of difficulties, there are changes in Europe when, uh, uh, that uh, Mrs Merkel is going to go by 2020. We have an American president who puts shivers down the spine of every Twitter account. Um, it, why wouldn't he just sort of press things? Why wouldn't he nudge? Why wouldn't he uh, put these things in people's minds that we say, Mr. Putin is a bit of a pain? Hmm. Uh, Mr. Putin has got no idea, I don't think, or his generals haven't, Jump. Uh, of actually going into the Ukraine now. They probably couldn't handle it. But that doesn't matter because in five years' time, all that can change. Isn't Jonathan the biggest risk, seriously, that there's some, going to be potentially some kind of miscalculation prompted by this escalation? Yes, and the miscalculation could happen in a variety of ways, including the possibility of a flare-up in the direct confrontation between Russian and uh, Russian state forces and Ukrainian state forces. Uh, the Ukrainian uh, government as well is facing an election next year, and it cannot afford to be constantly humiliated in this very overt way uh, by Russia. So yes, the risks of miscalculation exist, and they also exist in transatlantic relations. Let's not forget there is a sort of simmering dispute between the Europeans who do not want to uh, offer any lethal military equipment to Ukraine and the Americans who have crossed that threshold at least once. The British as always are trying to split the difference by increasing their training efforts with the Ukrainian military in the hope that that would avoid a bigger dispute about the equipment of the Ukrainian military. But we 
we could end up in a proxy war in Ukraine with us feeding Ukrainian with military equipment uh, and that could be a disaster for years to come. Jonathan Isle, good to speak to you. Thank you. Jonathan Isle, who's Associate Director at RUSI. So David Attenborough was the star speaker this week at the start of a global conference on climate change. He told the UN-backed gathering it's the greatest threat to humanity in thousands of years. It's often been said climate change could create any number of security problems as people look to escape areas that are no longer habitable. So what more should governments be doing and what role, if any, should the military be playing? Let's speak to Sherry Goodman, Senior Fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Centre and a Senior Advisor for International Security at the Centre for Climate Change. Hello, Sherry. You spent a lot of time looking at the security aspects of climate change. Just outline to us what you think the main issues are. Well, uh, the primary issue is that climate change serves as a threat multiplier for instability across the world. And we've said this now for over a decade, and David Attenborough and the recently released climate assessments of the last week, uh, including in the United States, show this to be ever more true with increasing warming temperatures, extreme weather events, sea level rise, uh, disruptive wildfires and droughts, Uh, throughout many parts of the world. So we're seeing climate disruption, which fuels both political disruption and um, humanitarian uh, crises as well. This has now become an underlying force in the politics of our age. Yeah, I asked at the beginning uh, whether the military should, what role, if any, the military should be playing. How do you think the military will be getting involved? Well, um, the military is increasingly seeing climate change affecting how and where it deploys its forces. Um, For example, the Secretary of Defense in the United States, Secretary Mattis, has said climate change is affecting our forces where they are deployed today. Um, And increasingly, militaries around the world are realizing that they will have to perform uh, more humanitarian assistance and disaster relief missions as a result of disruptive climate events, such as extreme weather events and storms uh, that put people's lives at risk, but they're also finding that their own bases and forces are put at risk from sea level rise affecting coastal bases, particularly in the United States, but also around the world, um, to higher temperatures, making it more difficult for troops to train uh, when it's uh, over 90 degrees Fahrenheit in many parts of the world on a regular basis. Last time you were on this program, you said the Pentagon was taking this seriously. That was under President Obama. Has that concern survived the transition to the Trump administration? Well, uh, military leaders, and including the civilian Secretary of Defense, Mattis, do still take it seriously. They are seeing the effects today. We we just had in Washington earlier this week a major Arctic uh, and security gathering where climate change was one of the underlying factors affecting uh, how we operate in a whole new ocean today uh, that's really opened up in our lifetime uh, because of climate change. So we're seeing that climate change has become uh, a catalyst for conflict, that we have to deploy more forces in more parts of the world, in fact, because climate change is changing uh, the very geopolitical regions where we operate. For example, making it easier for China to access into the Arctic, a region that was previously a frozen north. Mm, Sherry Goodman, um, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is here in the studio. Christopher? It's quite interesting, isn't it? So David Attenborough might might think he should stick to penguins because that speech he gave 
in, in Poland. There was hardly any applause. Uh, there weren't the top leaders there at that uh, at that, at that conference, and that is the way that politically, as we were reminded, that whatever you do that politically, that's where your solution comes, if it can come. As far as the military is concerned, it's very simple. Climate change has produced the, uh, the reckonings of, for example, population movements. The next stage from population movement is the difference in between the running of certain countries. You then get something which is hard to control, and that is the instability as a result of population movement of, a popu of one country that's got more than the other. In theory, the solution is the military. And in theory, the military can actually be called in and say, look, you've got to put a, a hand on this. You've got to sort of try and, and control it because we can't simply turn around on a dollar the means of actually growing more, feeding more, and watering more people. And that is the military threat of instability uh, that we see today. Christopher, stay with us. Sherry Goodman, thank you for your time today. Sherry Goodman, Senior Fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Centre. So we've got used to drones being flown over war zones, launching strikes at the command of personnel thousands of miles away. Now the army started testing potentially autonomous weapons for the first time. In Wiltshire, an unmanned vehicle called Titan Strike has been involved in an exercise called Autonomous Warrior. While ministers insist there'll always be a human decision in the use of lethal force, the growth of automated weapons raises any number of ethical issues. Well, Dr Peter Lee has been studying that and he's a reader in politics and ethics at the University of Portsmouth. Uh, Dr Lee, good to speak to you today. We were told this week by a minister that they're not going to approve autonomous weapons, but this does have the capacity to operate autonomously. Is it likely future generations of military leaders will resist the temptation to do that? I think... Future leaders of the military probably will because uh, once these forces are, are unleashed, they'll be very hard to recall. But there may well be political pressures uh, that, that could come about. If an enemy, for example, deployed such weaponry, um, there could be pressure to respond in kind. So there's a, there's a, potential, a potential for a kind of an arms race there. Mm, and when you see the exercising of a Titan strike, what do you think? Is it inevitable? I don't think it's inevitable, but I do think the name of the exercise is irresponsible because if you use the phrase autonomous warrior, it suggests that, that actually that, that is an independent robot terminator type machine. And actually, at the moment, autonomy is nowhere near good enough. For example, the cameras and um, the, the ability to interpret them by machine are very limited. Uh, machines really struggle with depth perception and how you'd identify a specific enemy or is it a combatant or a non-combatant. So there are huge uh, technical limitations still to be overcome, even if you could fire a weapon autonomously, um, and, and that that's up for debate, selection of targets uh, could put you in a, a difficult situation with international law. Mm, assuming that this technology does develop, the ability to operate in areas deemed too dangerous for soldiers could presumably raise the prospects of shortening conflicts, currently ones that where people might get trapped in a stalemate. It certainly could. Um, I think one of the more attractive features of the exercise is the potential for casualty evacuation. So if it's a very dangerous environment and, and there's a casualty on the ground, some kind of autonomous transporting system uh, could be very useful and it would have a humanitarian function. 
So that might not shorten a war, but it could certainly um, help with the protection of lives during war. Christopher Lee, um, if autonomy isn't going to be resisted forever, and, and there is a case that it is already used, uh, who gets to define the terms of engagement applied to robots? Well, I, I, I think if you get rid of the term robots, then you're closer to an answer. I mean, for example, if you take a warship, uh, um, the PWO, the principal warfare officer, his duty or his main, main job is to command, do not fire, uh, because the whole system has to be automated. And that's, 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 a, that's a small side of it. I think j- joint operations in major warfare, um, you will run into problems with any robotic system because you've got to operate with other people, other commands, uh, maybe other other countries, and therefore that has to be part of something uh, which has to be agreed in the operational plan. In special operations, uh, small operations of your own, or something which you're running by yourself, there's absolutely no reason why you couldn't, uh, once you've got over the idea that the, 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 the technology works, there's no reason why you shouldn't uh, uh, use the systems anyway. What we saw, Peter Lee, uh, on Salisbury Plain was using remote control, drawing parallels with drone operators. Is there evidence that the approach to conflict is different when you're not in the direct physical danger yourself? Yes, as you know, I've done a lot of research with the RAF Reaper Force, and one of the benefits of them not being actively in that in that battle space is, firstly, there's not the same, quite the same level of physical threat, or there's not the same physical threat to them. It gives them more thinking space, that physical distance, um, and the time it gives them allows for greater consideration of who they're targeting, what weapon to use. Should they target someone in a particular situation or should they wait a few hours or wait until tomorrow? So the remote aspect does have some some benefits. And because of the acuity of the cameras and so on, the, the, the visual engagement with potential targets is extremely good. So there are, there are definitely many benefits, both ethically, practically, operationally, to the right kind of remote. And what about the the argument of the operator becoming a target themselves? Oh, I think they certainly do. If you are engaged in a war, if you are actively engaging an enemy, then I think throughout the the history of of Western war and and the Western way of war and ethics, um, there's there's a kind of equality or equivalence um, of of liability amongst combatants. So if if I'm shooting you, you have the moral right uh, to, to shoot me. So I think everyone I know who, who I've spoken to who's involved in remote war is, is aware of this. I think, I think it, it's quite interesting, isn't it, Peter, in your book, when you talk about, say, a couple of jockeys, a couple of the pilots sitting there out at Crete somewhere operating a, operating a, a, a remote vehicle, um, they have to go home at night. They're part of it, uh, and therefore you, you, you create a sort of a, a great ethical system. Does it get to you? Whatever. What we're really imagining, what we want to imagine, is a whole battlefield of people coming out of some sort of uh, supply game, uh, or, or almost, to, to take on the enemy, which has similar <coughs> r- robotic uh, weapons. And I think that's something which we're going to have to wait some time. On that note, we'll have to leave it for now. Dr. Peter Lee, Reader in Politics and Ethics at the University of Portsmouth, thank you for your time today. Now, some big promotions at the top of the military this week, a move that's being seen as evidence of the government's determination to reform the forces. The Defence Secretary's announced four new four-star appointments, praising them as forward-looking and keen to modernise. Christopher, who are they? Well, 
can I just say modernizing the forces? I mean, it, it almost suggests that the, um, the the commanders of the the, the forces, for example, uh, First Sea Lord, uh, Kaz, um, the CGS, have been dummies before. Um, and finally, under Nick Carter, the chief of the defence staff, they brought in some okay. modernisers. Semantics so aside, who are they? That, well, we've got, I think, rather interesting, we've got uh, Tony Radekin, uh, who is going to be the newest uh, first sea lord. He's a seagoer. Um, and, you know, not big seagoer, but he's a seagoer. He thinks seagoing. He's got the, he's got the sort of central idea of, 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 of his career. Um, Pat Sanders, um, he's going to be the commander, Joint Forces Command, which I always think is probably the most, at the moment, the most important command, uh, working command in the army. And he's got, he's a Royal Green Jacket. He's got the background of having sort of uh, commanded in, 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 in Northern Ireland. Uh, Fraser, um, interesting man, Vice Chief of the Defence Staff, Deputy Head of the Armed Forces. He would sort of, in theory, uh, Nick Carter's number two. Now, he has got big sea com uh, commands uh, in, in, in HMS Illustrious, the aircraft carrier, etc., and also two Type 42s. When you put this lot together, um, you have people who've come up at the top end of their careers at a time when the forces have been changed with new equipment, F-35, sea uh, carriers, etc., uh, and these people have had to think it the way, think their way through. Quite different from people who were being appointed, let's say, 30 years ago. But then we didn't have the equipment which they will have to actually work out how we use. And that is all for this week. Thanks to Christopher and all of this week's guests. Don't forget, you can get in touch on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And while you're online, you can sign up for the podcast. Just search for SITREP wherever you are and download. Speak to you same time next week. Bye-bye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. A massive cash boost 